What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 1 of The Warden. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jessica Louise. The Warden by Anthony Trollope. Chapter 1. Hiram's Hospital. The Reverend Septimus Harding was, a few years since, a beneficed clergyman residing in the cathedral town of, let's call it Barchester. Were we to name Wells or Salisbury, Exeter, Hereford, or Gloucester, it might be presumed that something personal was intended, and as this tale will refer mainly to the cathedral dignitaries of the town in question, we are anxious that no personality may be suspected. Let us presume that Barchester is a quiet town in the west of England, more remarkable for the beauty of its cathedral and the antiquity of its monuments than for any commercial prosperity that the west end of Barchester is the cathedral close, and that the aristocracy of Barchester are the bishop, dean, and canons with their respective wives and daughters. Early in life Mr. Harding found himself located at Barchester. A fine voice and a taste for sacred music had decided the position in which he was to exercise his calling, and for many years he performed the easy but not highly paid duties of a minor canon. At the age of forty, a small living in the close vicinity of the town increased both his work and his income, and at the age of fifty he became precentor of the cathedral. Mr. Harding had married early in life, and was the father of two daughters. The eldest, Susan, was born soon after his marriage, the other, Eleanor, not till ten years later. At the time at which we introduce him to our readers, he was living as precentor at Barchester with his youngest daughter, then twenty-four years of age, having been many years a widower, and having married his eldest daughter to a son of the bishop a very short time before his installation to the office of precentor. Scandal at Barchester affirmed that, had it not been for the beauty of his daughter, Mr. Harding would have remained a minor canon but here probably scandal lied, as she so often does, for even as a minor canon no one had been more popular among his reverend brethren in the close than Mr. Harding, and scandal, before she had reprobated Mr. Harding for being made precentor by his friend the bishop, had loudly blamed the bishop for having so long omitted to do something for his friend Mr. Harding. Be this as it may, Susan Harding, some twelve years since, had married the Reverend Dr. Theophilus Grantley, son of the bishop, 
archdeacon of barchester and rector of plumstead episcopi and her father became a few months later precentor of barchester cathedral that office being as is not unusual in the bishop's gift now there are peculiar circumstances connected with the precentorship which must be explained in the year fourteen thirty four there died at barchester one john hiram who had made money in the town as a wool stapler and in his will he left the house in which he died and certain meadows and closes near the town still called hiram's butts and hiram's patch for the support of twelve superannuated wool carters all of whom should have been born and bred and spent their days in barchester he also appointed that an almshouse should be built for their abode with a fitting residence for a warden which warden was also to receive a certain sum annually out of the rents of the said butts and patches he moreover willed having had a soul alive to harmony that the precentor of the cathedral should have the option of being also warden of the almshouses if the bishop in each case approved from that day to this the charity had gone on and prospered at least the charity had gone on and the estates had prospered wool-carding in barchester there was no longer any so the bishop dean and warden who took it in turn to put in the old men generally appointed some hangers-on of their own worn-out gardeners decrepit grave-diggers or octogenarian sextons who thankfully received a comfortable lodging and one shilling and fourpence a day such being the stipend to which under the will of john hiram they were declared to be entitled formerly indeed that is till within some fifty years of the present time they received but sixpence a day and their breakfast and dinner was found them at a common table by the warden such an arrangement being in stricter conformity with the absolute wording of old hiram's will but this was thought to be inconvenient and to suit the tastes of neither warden nor beadsman and the daily one shilling and fourpence was substituted with the common consent of all parties including the bishop and the corporation of barchester such was the condition of hiram's twelve old men when mr harding was appointed warden but if they may be considered as well-to-do in the world according to their condition the happy warden was much more so the patches and butts which in john hiram's time produced hay or fed cows were now covered with rows of houses the value of the property had gradually increased from year to year and century to century and was now presumed by those who knew anything about it to bring in a very nice income and by some who knew nothing about it to have increased to an almost fabulous extent the property was farmed by a gentleman in barchester who also acted as the bishop's steward a man whose father and grandfather had been stewards to the bishop of barchester and farmers of john hiram's estate the chadwicks had earned a good name in barchester they had lived respected by bishops deans canons and precentors they had been buried in the precincts of the cathedral they had never been known as griping hard men but had always lived comfortably maintained a good house and held a high position in barchester society the present mr chadwick was a worthy scion of a worthy stock and the tenants living on the butts and patches as well as those on the wide episcopal domains of the sea were well pleased to have to do with so worthy and liberal a steward for many many years records hardly tell how many probably from the time when hiram's wishes had first been fully carried out the proceeds of the estate had been paid by the steward or farmer to the warden and by him divided among the bedesmen 
after which division he paid himself such sums as became his due. Times had been when the poor warden got nothing but his bare house, for the patches had been subject to floods, and the land of Barchester Butts was said to be unproductive, and in these hard times the warden was hardly able to make out the daily dole for his twelve dependents. But by degrees things mended, the patches were drained, and cottages began to rise upon the butts, and the wardens, with fairness enough, repaid themselves for the evil days gone by. In bad times the poor men had had their due, and therefore in good times they could expect no more. In this manner the income of the warden had increased. The picturesque house attached to the hospital had been enlarged and adorned, and the office had become one of the most coveted of the snug clerical sinecures attached to our church. It was now wholly in the bishop's gift, and though the dean and chapter in former days made a stand on the subject, they had thought it more conducive to their honour to have a rich precentor appointed by the bishop than a poor one appointed by themselves. The stipend of the precentor of Barchester was eighty pounds a year. The income arising from the wardenship of the hospital was eight hundred, besides the value of the house. Murmurs, very slight murmurs, had been heard in Barchester, few indeed and far between, that the proceeds of John Hiram's property had not been fairly divided, but they can hardly be said to have been of such a nature as to have caused uneasiness to any one. Still, the thing had been whispered, and Mr. Harding had heard it. Such was his character in Barchester, so universal was his popularity, that the very fact of his appointment would have quieted louder whispers than those which had been heard. But Mr. Harding was an open-handed, just-minded man, and feeling that there might be truth in what had been said, he had on his installment declared his intention of adding tuppence a day to each man's pittance, making a sum of sixty-two pounds, eleven shillings, and fourpence, which he was to pay out of his own pocket. In doing so, however, he distinctly and repeatedly observed to the men that though he promised for himself, he could not promise for his successors, and that the extra tuppence could only be looked on as a gift from himself and not from the trust. The beadsmen, however, were most of them older than Mr. Harding and were quite satisfied with the security on which their extra income was based. The munificence on the part of Mr. Harding had not been unopposed. Mr. Chadwick had mildly but seriously dissuaded him from it, and his strong-minded son-in-law, the archdeacon, the man of whom alone Mr. Harding stood in awe, had urgently, nay, vehemently, opposed so impolitic a concession. But the warden had made known his intention to the hospital before the archdeacon had been able to interfere, and the deed was done. Hiram's Hospital, as the retreat is called, is a picturesque building enough, and shows the correct taste with which the ecclesiastical architects of those days were imbued. It stands on the banks of the little river, which flows nearly round the cathedral close, being on the side furthest from the town. The London road crosses the river by a pretty one-arched bridge, and looking from this bridge the stranger will see the windows of the old men's rooms, each pair of windows separated by a small buttress. A broad gravel walk runs between the building and the river, which is always trim and cared for, and at the end of the walk, under the parapet of the approach to the bridge, is a large and well-worn seat, on which, in mild weather, three or four of Hiram's beadsmen are sure to be seen seated. 
beyond this row of buttresses and further from the bridge and also further from the water which here suddenly bends are the pretty oriel windows of mr harding's house and his well-mown lawn the entrance to the hospital is from the london road and is made through a ponderous gateway under a heavy stone arch unnecessary one would suppose at any time for the protection of twelve old men but greatly conducive to the good appearance of hiram's charity on passing through this portal never closed to any one from six a m till ten p m and never open afterwards except on application to a huge intricately hung medieval bell the handle of which no uninitiated intruder can possibly find the six doors of the old men's abodes are seen and beyond them is a slight iron screen through which the more happy portion of the barchester elite pass into the elysium of mr harding's dwelling mr harding is a small man now verging on sixty years but bearing few of the signs of age his hair is rather grizzled though not grey his eye is very mild but clear and bright though the double glasses which are held swinging from his hand unless when fixed upon his nose show that time has told upon his sight his hands are delicately white and both hands and feet are small he always wears a black frock coat black knee breeches and black gaiters and somewhat scandalizes some of his more hyperclerical brethren by a black neck handkerchief mr harding's warmest admirers cannot say that he was ever an industrious man the circumstances of his life had not called on him to be so and yet he can hardly be called an idler since his appointment to his precentorship he has published with all possible editions of vellum typography and gilding a collection of our ancient church music with some correct dissertations on purcell crotch and nares he has greatly improved the choir of barchester which under his dominion now rivals that of any cathedral in england he has taken something more than his fair share in the cathedral services and has played the violoncello daily to such audiences as he could collect or faute de mieux to no audience at all we must mention one other peculiarity of mr harding as we have before stated he has an income of eight hundred a year and has no family but his one daughter and yet he is never quite at ease in money matters the vellum and gilding of harding's church music cost more than any one knows except the author the publisher and the reverend theophilus grantly who allows none of his father-in-law's extravagances to escape him then he is generous to his daughter for whose service he keeps a small carriage and a pair of ponies he is indeed generous to all but especially to the twelve old men who are in a peculiar manner under his care no doubt with such an income mr harding should be above the world as the saying is but at any rate he is not above archdeacon theophilus grantly for he is always more or less in debt to his son-in-law who has to a certain extent assumed the arrangement of the precentor's pecuniary affairs end of chapter one Recording by Jessica Louise, St. Paul, Minnesota. Chapter 2 of The Warden. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Jessica Louise. The Warden by Anthony Trollope. Chapter 2 The Barchester Reformer. 
Mr. Harding has been now precentor of Barchester for ten years, and alas the murmurs respecting the proceeds of Hiram's estate are again becoming audible. It is not that anyone begrudges to Mr. Harding the income which he enjoys, and the comfortable place which so well becomes him, but such matters have begun to be talked of in various parts of England. Eager pushing politicians have asserted in the House of Commons, with very telling indignation, that the grasping priests of the Church of England are gorged with the wealth which the charity of former times has left for the solace of the aged, or the education of the young. The well-known case of the Hospital of St. Cross has even come before the law courts of the country, and the struggles of Mr. Whitson at Rochester have met with sympathy and support. Men are beginning to say that these things must be looked into. Mr. Harding, whose conscience in the matter is clear, and who has never felt that he had received a pound from Hiram's will to which he was not entitled, has naturally taken the part of the church in talking over these matters with his friend, the bishop, and his son-in-law, the archdeacon. The archdeacon, indeed, Dr. Grantley, has been somewhat loud in the matter. He is a personal friend of the dignitaries of the Rochester chapter, and has written letters in the public press on the subject of that turbulent Dr. Whitson, which his admirers think must well-nigh set the question at rest. It is also known at Oxford that he is the author of the pamphlet signed Sacerdos on the subject of the Earl of Guildford and St. Cross, in which it is so clearly argued that the manners of the present times do not admit of a literal adhesion to the very words of the founder's will, but that the interests of the church for which the founder was so deeply concerned are best consulted in enabling its bishops to reward those shining lights whose services have been most signally serviceable to Christianity. In answer to this, it is asserted that Henry de Blois, founder of St. Cross, was not greatly interested in the welfare of the Reformed Church, and that the masters of St. Cross, for many years past, cannot be called shining lights in the service of Christianity. It is, however, stoutly maintained, and no doubt felt, by all the archdeacon's friends, that his logic is conclusive, and has not, in fact, been answered. With such a tower of strength to back both his arguments and his conscience, it may be imagined that Mr. Harding has never felt any compunction as to receiving his quarterly sum of two hundred pounds. Indeed, the subject has never presented itself to his mind in that shape. He has talked not unfrequently and heard very much about the wills of old founders and the incomes arising from their estates during the last year or two. He did even at one moment feel a doubt since expelled by his son-in-law's logic, as to whether Lord Guildford was clearly entitled to receive so enormous an income as he does from the revenues of St. Cross. But that he himself was overpaid with his modest eight hundred pounds, he who, out of that, voluntarily gave up sixty-two pounds eleven shillings and fourpence a year to his twelve old neighbors, he who, for the money, does his precentor's work as no precentor has done it before, since barchester cathedral was built such an idea has never sullied his quiet or disturbed his conscience nevertheless mr harding is becoming uneasy at the rumour which he knows to prevail in barchester on the subject he is aware that at any rate two of his old men have been heard to say that if every one had his own they might each have their hundred pounds a year and live like gentlemen instead of 
a beggarly one shilling and sixpence a day, and that they had slender cause to be thankful for a miserable dole of tuppence when Mr. Harding and Mr. Chadwick between them ran away with thousands of pounds which good old John Hiram never intended for the like of them. It is the ingratitude of this which stings Mr. Harding. One of this discontented pair, Abel Handy, was put into the hospital by himself. He had been a stonemason in Barchester, and had broken his thigh by a fall from a scaffolding, while employed about the cathedral, and Mr. Harding had given him the first vacancy in the hospital after the occurrence, although Dr. Grantly had been very anxious to put into it an insufferable clerk of his at Plumstead Episcopi, who had lost all his teeth, and whom the archdeacon hardly knew how to get rid of by other means. Dr. Grantly had not forgotten to remind Mr. Harding how well satisfied with his one and sixpence a day old Joe Mutters would have been, and how injudicious it was on the part of Mr. Harding to allow a radical from the town to get into the concern. Probably Dr. Grantly forgot, at the moment, that the charity was intended for a broken-down journeyman of Barchester. There is living at Barchester a young man, a surgeon, named John Bold, and both Mr. Harding and Dr. Grantly are well aware that to him is owing the pestilent rebellious feeling which has shown itself in the hospital. Yes, and the renewal, too, of that disagreeable talk about Hiram's estates which is now again prevalent in Barchester. Nevertheless, Mr. Harding and Mr. Bold are acquainted with each other. We may say our friends, considering the great disparity in their years. Dr. Grantley, however, has a holy horror of the impious demagogue, as on one occasion he called Bold, when speaking of him to the precentor, and being a more prudent, far-seeing man than Mr. Harding, and possessed of a stronger head, he already perceives that this John Bold will work great trouble in Barchester. He considers that he is to be regarded as an enemy, and thinks that he should not be admitted into the camp on anything like friendly terms. As John Bold will occupy much of our attention, we must endeavor to explain who he is and why he takes the part of John Hiram's beadsman. John Bold is a young surgeon who passed many of his boyish years at Barchester. His father was a physician in the city of London, where he made a moderate fortune, which he invested in houses in that city. The Dragon of Wantley Inn and Posting House belonged to him, also four shops in the high street, and a moiety of the new row of genteel villas, so-called in the advertisements, built outside the town just beyond Hiram's Hospital. To one of these Dr. Bold retired to spend the evening of his life and to die, and here his son John spent his holidays and afterwards his Christmas vacation when he went from school to study surgery in the London hospitals. Just as John Bold was entitled to write himself surgeon and apothecary, old Dr. Bold died, leaving his Barchester property to his son and a certain sum in the three percents to his daughter Mary, who is some four or five years older than her brother. John Bold determined to settle himself at Barchester and look after his own property, as well as the bones and bodies of such of his neighbors as would call upon him for assistance in their troubles. He therefore put up a large brass plate with John Bold, surgeon, on it, to the great disgust of the nine practitioners who were already trying to get a living out of the bishop, dean, and canons, and began housekeeping with the aid of his sister. At this time he was not more than twenty-four years old, and though he has now been three years in Barchester, we have not heard that he has done much harm to the nine worthy practitioners. Indeed, their dread of him has died away. 
for in three years he has not taken three fees. Nevertheless, John Bold is a clever man, and would with practice be a clever surgeon, but he has got quite into another line of life. Having enough to live on, he has not been forced to work for bread. He has declined to subject himself to what he calls the drudgery of the profession, by which I believe he means the general work of a practicing surgeon, and has found other employment. He frequently binds up the bruises and sets the limbs of such of the poorer classes as profess his way of thinking, but this he does for love. Now, I will not say that the archdeacon is strictly correct in stigmatizing John Bold as a demagogue, for I hardly know how extreme must be a man's opinions before he can be justly so called. But Bold is a strong reformer. His passion is the reform of all abuses, state abuses, church abuses, corporation abuses. He has got himself elected a town councillor of Barchester, and has so worried three consecutive mayors that it became somewhat difficult to find a fourth. Abuses in medical practice, and general abuses in the world at large. Bold is thoroughly sincere in his patriotic endeavors to mend mankind, and there is something to be admired in the energy with which he devotes himself to remedying evil and stopping injustice. But I fear that he is too much imbued with the idea that he has a special mission for reforming. It would be well if one so young had a little more diffidence himself, and more trust in the honest purposes of others. If he could be brought to believe that old customs need not necessarily be evil, and that changes may possibly be dangerous. But no, Bold has all the ardor and all the self-assurance of a Danton, and he hurls his anathemas against time-honored practices with the violence of a French Jacobin. No wonder that Dr. Grantly should regard Bold as a firebrand, falling as he has done almost in the center of the quiet, ancient close of Barchester Cathedral. Dr. Grantly would have him avoided as the plague, but the old doctor and Mr. Harding were fast friends. Young Johnny Bold used to play as a boy on Mr. Harding's lawn. He has many a time won the precentor's heart by listening with rapt attention to his sacred strains, and since those days, to tell the truth at once, he has nearly won another heart within the same walls. Eleanor Harding has not plighted her troth to John Bold, nor has she perhaps owned to herself how dear to her the young reformer is, but she cannot endure that anyone should speak harshly of him. She does not dare to defend him when her brother-in-law is so loud against him, for she, like her father, is somewhat afraid of Dr. Grantly, but she is beginning greatly to dislike the archdeacon. She persuades her father that it would be both unjust and injudicious to banish his young friend because of his politics. She cares little to go to houses where she will not meet him, and, in fact, she is in love. Nor is there any good reason why Eleanor Harding should not love John Bold. He has all those qualities which are likely to touch a girl's heart. He is brave, eager, and amusing, well-made and good-looking, young and enterprising. His character is in all respects good. He has sufficient income to support a wife. He is her father's friend, and above all he is in love with her. Then why should not Eleanor Harding be attached to John Bold? Dr. Grantly, who has as many eyes as Argus, and has long seen how the wind blows in that direction, thinks there are various strong reasons why this should not be so. He has not thought it wise as yet to speak to his father-in-law on the subject, for he knows how foolishly indulgent is Mr. Harding in everything that concerns his daughter. 
but he has discussed the matter with his all-trusted helpmate within that sacred recess formed by the clerical bed-curtains at plumstead episcopi how much sweet solace how much valued counsel has our archdeacon received within that sainted enclosure tis there alone that he unbends and comes down from his high church pedestal to the level of a mortal man in the world dr grantly never lays aside that demeanour which so well becomes him he has all the dignity of an ancient saint with the sleekness of a modern bishop he is always the same he is always the archdeacon unlike homer he never nods even with his father-in-law even with the bishop and dean he maintains that sonorous tone and lofty deportment which strikes awe into the young hearts of barchester and absolutely cows the whole parish of plumstead episcopi tis only when he has exchanged that ever new shovel hat for a tasselled nightcap in those shining black habiliments for his accustomed robe de nuit that dr grantly talks and looks and thinks like an ordinary man many of us have often thought how severe a trial of faith must this be to the wives of our great church dignitaries to us these men are personifications of st paul their very gait is a speaking sermon their clean and sombre apparel exacts from us faith and submission and the cardinal virtues seem to hover round their sacred hats a dean or archbishop in the garb of his order is sure of our reverence and a well-got-up bishop fills our very souls with awe but how can this feeling be perpetuated in the bosoms of those who see the bishops without their aprons and the archdeacons even in a lower state of dishabille do we not all know some reverend all but sacred personage before whom our tongue ceases to be loud and our step to be elastic but were we once to see him stretch himself beneath the bedclothes yawn widely and bury his face upon his pillow we could chatter before him as glibly as before a doctor or a lawyer for some such cause doubtless it arose that our archdeacon listened to the counsels of his wife though he considered himself entitled to give counsel to every other being whom he met my dear he said as he adjusted the copious folds of his nightcap there was that john bold at your father's again to-day i must say your father is very imprudent he is imprudent he always was replied mrs grantly speaking from under the comfortable bedclothes there's nothing new in that no my dear there's nothing new i know that but at the present juncture of affairs such imprudence is is i'll tell you what my dear if he does not take care what he's about john bold will be off with eleanor i think he will whether papa takes care or no and why not why not almost screamed the archdeacon giving so rough a pull at his nightcap as almost to bring it over his nose why not that pestilent interfering upstart john bold the most vulgar young person i ever met do you know that he is meddling with your father's affairs in a most uncalled-for most and being at a loss for an epithet sufficiently injurious he finished his expressions of horror by muttering good heavens in a manner that had been found very efficacious in clerical meetings of the diocese he must for the moment have forgotten where he was as to his vulgarity archdeacon mrs grantly had never assumed a more familiar term than this in addressing her husband i don't agree with you not that i like mr bold he's a great deal too conceited for me but then eleanor does 
and it would be the best thing in the world for papa if they were to marry bold would never trouble himself about hiram's hospital if he were papa's son-in-law and the lady turned herself round under the bedclothes in a manner to which the doctor was well accustomed and which told him as plainly as words that as far as she was concerned the subject was over for that night good heavens murmured the doctor again he was evidently much put beside himself dr grantly is by no means a bad man he is exactly the man which such an education as his was most likely to form his intellect being sufficient for such a place in the world but not sufficient to put him in advance of it he performs with a rigid constancy such of the duties of a parish clergyman as are to his thinking above the sphere of his curate but it is as an archdeacon that he shines we believe as a general rule that either a bishop or his archdeacons have sinecures where a bishop works archdeacons have but little to do and vice versa in the diocese of the barchester the archdeacon of barchester does the work in that capacity he is diligent authoritative and as his friends particularly boast judicious his great fault is an overbearing assurance of the virtues and claims of his order and his great foible is an equally strong confidence in the dignity of his own manner and the eloquence of his own words he is a moral man believing the precepts which he teaches and believing also that he acts up to them though we cannot say that he would give his coat to the man who took his cloak or that he is prepared to forgive his brother even seven times he is severe enough in exacting his dues considering that any laxity in this respect would endanger the security of the church and could he have his way he would consign to darkness and perdition not only every individual reformer but every committee and every commission that would even dare to ask a question respecting the appropriation of church revenues they are church revenues the laity admit it surely the church is able to administer her own revenues "'Twas thus he was accustomed to argue when the sacrilegious doings of Lord John Russell and others were discussed either at Barchester or at Oxford. It was no wonder that Dr. Grantley did not like John Bold, and that his wife's suggestion that he should become closely connected with such a man dismayed him. To give him his due, the archdeacon never wanted courage. He was quite willing to meet his enemy on any field and with any weapon." He had that idea in his own arguments that he felt sure of success, could he only be sure of a fair fight on the part of his adversary. He had no idea that John Bold could really prove that the income of the hospital was malappropriated. Why, then, should peace be sought for on such base terms? What, bribe an unbelieving enemy of the church with the sister-in-law of one dignitary and the daughter of another? with a young lady whose connections with the diocese and the chapter of barchester were so close as to give her an undeniable claim to a husband endowed with some of its sacred wealth when dr grantly talks of unbelieving enemies he does not mean to imply want of belief in the doctrines of the church but an equally dangerous scepticism as to its purity in money matters mrs grantly is not usually deaf to the claims of the high order to which she belongs she and her husband rarely disagree as to the tone with which the church should be defended how singular then that in such a case as this she should be willing to succumb the archdeacon again murmurs good heavens as he lays himself beside her but he does so in a voice audible only to himself 
and he repeats it till sleep relieves him from deep thought. Mr. Harding himself has seen no reason why his daughter should not love John Bold. He has not been unobservant of her feelings, and perhaps his deepest regret at the part which he fears Bold is about to take regarding the hospital arises from the dread that he may be separated from his daughter, or that she may be separated from the man she loves. He has never spoken to Eleanor about her lover. He is the last man in the world to allude to such a subject unconsulted, even with his own daughter, and had he considered that he had ground to disapprove of Bold, he would have removed her, or forbidden him his house. But he saw no such ground. He would probably have preferred a second clerical son-in-law, for Mr. Harding also is attached to his order, and failing in that, he would at any rate have wished that so near a connection should have thought alike with him on church matters. He would not, however, reject the man his daughter loved, because he differed on such subjects with himself. Hitherto Bold had taken no steps in the matter in any way annoying to Mr. Harding personally. Some months since, after a severe battle which cost him not a little money, he gained a victory over a certain old turnpike woman in the neighborhood, of whose charges another old woman had complained to him. He got the Act of Parliament relating to the trust, found that his protégé had been wrongly taxed, rode through the gate himself paying the toll, then brought an action against the gatekeeper and proved that all people coming up a certain by-lane and going down a certain other by-lane were toll-free. The fame of his success spread widely abroad, and he began to be looked on as the upholder of the rights of the poor of Barchester. Not long after this success he heard from different quarters that Hiram's beadsmen were treated as paupers, whereas the property to which they were, in effect, heirs, was very large, and he was instigated by the lawyer whom he had employed in the case of the turnpike to call upon Mr. Chadwick for a statement as to the funds of the estate. Bold had often expressed his indignation at the malappropriation of church funds in general, in the hearing of his friend the precentor, but the conversation had never referred to anything at Barchester, and when Finney, the attorney, induced him to interfere with the affairs of the hospital, it was against Mr. Chadwick that his efforts were to be directed. Bold soon found that if he interfered with Mr. Chadwick as steward, he must also interfere with Mr. Harding as warden, and though he regretted the situation in which this would place him, he was not the man to flinch from his undertaking from personal motives. As soon as he had determined to take the matter in hand, he set about his work with his usual energy. He got a copy of John Hiram's will, of the wording of which he made himself perfectly master. He ascertained the extent of the property, and as nearly as he could the value of it, and made out a schedule of what he was informed was the present distribution of its income. Armed with these particulars, he called on Mr. Chadwick, having given that gentleman notice of his visit, and asked him for a statement of the income and expenditure of the hospital for the last twenty-five years. This was, of course, refused. Mr. Chadwick, alleging that he had no authority for making public the concerns of a property in managing which he was only a paid servant. "'And who is competent to give you that authority, Mr. Chadwick?' asked Bold. "'Only those who employ me, Mr. Bold,' said the steward. "'And who are those, Mr. Chadwick?' demanded Bold. Mr. Chadwick begged to say that if these inquiries were made merely out of curiosity, he must decline answering them. 
if mr bold had any ulterior proceeding in view perhaps it would be desirable that any necessary information should be sought for in a professional way by a professional man mr chadwick's attorneys were messrs cox and cummins of lincoln's inn mr bold took down the address of cox and cummins remarked that the weather was cold for the time of year and wished mr chadwick good morning mr chadwick said it was cold for june and bowed him out he at once went to his lawyer finney now bold was not very fond of his attorney but as he said he merely wanted a man who knew the forms of law and who would do what he was told for his money he had no idea of putting himself in the hands of a lawyer he wanted law from a lawyer as he did a coat from a tailor because he could not make it so well himself and thought finney the fittest man in barchester for his purpose in one respect at any rate he was right finney was humility itself finney advertised an instant letter to cox and cummins mindful of his six and eightpence slap at them at once mr bold demand categorically and explicitly a full statement of the affairs of the hospital suppose i receive mr harding first suggested bold yes yes by all means said the acquiescing finney though perhaps as mr harding is no man of business it may lead lead to some little difficulties but perhaps you're right mr bold i don't think seeing mr harding can do any harm finney saw from the expression of his client's face that he intended to have his own way End of chapter 2. Recording by Jessica Louise, St. Paul, Minnesota. Chapter 3 of The Warden. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Jessica Louise. The Warden by Anthony Trollope. Chapter 3. The Bishop of Barchester. Bold at once repaired to the hospital. The day was now far advanced, but he knew that Mr. Harding dined in the summer at four, that Eleanor was accustomed to drive in the evening, and that he might therefore probably find Mr. Harding alone. It was between seven and eight when he reached the slight iron gate leading into the precentor's garden, and though, as Mr. Chadwick observed, the day had been cold for June, the evening was mild and soft and sweet. The little gate was open. As he raised the latch, he heard the notes of Mr. Harding's violoncello from the far end of the garden, and advancing before the house and across the lawn he found him playing, and not without an audience. The musician was seated in the garden chair just within the summer-house, so as to allow the violoncello which he held between his knees to rest upon the dry stone flooring. Before him stood a rough music-desk, on which was open a page of that dear sacred book, that much-laboured and much-loved volume of church music which had cost so many guineas, and around sat and lay and stood and leaned ten of the twelve old men who dwelt with him beneath old John Hiram's roof. The two reformers were not there. I will not say that in their hearts they were conscious of any wrong done or to be done to their mild warden, but latterly they had kept aloof from him, and his music was no longer to their taste. It was amusing to see the positions and eager listening faces of these well-to-do old men. I will not say that they all appreciated the music which they heard, but they were intent on appearing to do so. Pleased at being where they were, they were determined, as far as in them lay, to give pleasure in return, and they were not unsuccessful. 
it gladdened the precentor's heart to think that the old beadsman whom he loved so well admired the strains which were to him so full of almost ecstatic joy and he used to boast that such was the air of the hospital as to make it a precinct specially fit for the worship of saint cecilia immediately before him on the extreme corner of the bench which ran round the summer-house sat one old man with his handkerchief smoothly lain upon his knees who did enjoy the moment or acted enjoyment well he was one on whose large frame many years for he was over eighty had made small havoc he was still an upright burly handsome figure with an open ponderous brow round which clung a few though very few thin grey locks the coarse black gown of the hospital the breeches and buckled shoes became him well and as he sat with his hands folded on his staff and his chin resting on his hands he was such a listener as most musicians would be glad to welcome this man was certainly the pride of the hospital it had always been the custom that one should be selected as being to some extent in authority over the others and though mr bunce for such was his name and so he was always designated by his inferior brethren had no greater emoluments than they he had assumed and well knew how to maintain the dignity of his elevation the precentor delighted to call him his sub-warden and was not ashamed occasionally when no other guest was there to bid him sit down by the same parlour fire and drink the full glass of port which was placed near him bunce never went without the second glass but no entreaty ever made him take a third well well mr harding you're too good much too good he'd always say as the second glass was filled but when that was drunk and the half-hour over bunce stood erect and with a benediction which his patron valued retired to his own abode he knew the world too well to risk the comfort of such halcyon moments by prolonging them till they were disagreeable mr bunce as may be imagined was most strongly opposed to innovation not even dr grantly had a more holy horror of those who would interfere in the affairs of the hospital he was every inch a churchman and though he was not very fond of dr grantly personally that arose from there not being room in the hospital for two people so much alike as the doctor and himself rather than from any dissimilarity in feeling mr bunce was inclined to think that the warden and himself could manage the hospital without further assistance and that though the bishop was the constitutional visitor and as such entitled to special reverence from all connected with john hiram's will john hiram never intended that his affairs should be interfered with by an archdeacon at the present moment however these cares were off his mind and he was looking at his warden as though he thought the music heavenly and the musician hardly less so as bold walked silently over the lawn mr harding did not at first perceive him and continued to draw his bow slowly across the plaintive wires but he soon found from his audience that some stranger was there and looking up began to welcome his young friend with frank hospitality pray mr harding pray don't let me disturb you said bold you know how fond i am of sacred music oh it's nothing said the precentor shutting up the book and then opening it again as he saw the delightfully imploring look of his old friend bunce oh bunce 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 i fear that after all thou art but a flatterer well i'll just finish it then it's a favourite little bit of bishops and then mr bold will have a stroll and a chat till eleanor comes in and gives us tea 
and so bold sat down on the soft turf to listen or rather to think how after such sweet harmony he might best introduce a theme of so much discord to disturb the peace of him who was so ready to welcome him kindly bold thought that the performance was soon over for he felt that he had a somewhat difficult task and he almost regretted the final leave-taking of the last of the old men slow as they were in going through their adieu bold's heart was in his mouth as the precentor made some ordinary but kind remark as to the friendliness of the visit one evening call said he is worth ten in the morning it's all formality in the morning real social talk never begins till after dinner that's why i dine early so as to get as much as i can of it quite true mr harding said the other but i fear i've reversed the order of things and i owe you much apology for troubling you on business at such an hour but it is on business that i have called just now mr harding looked blank and annoyed there was something in the tone of the young man's voice which told him that the interview was intended to be disagreeable and he shrank back at finding his kindly greeting so repulsed i wish to speak to you about the hospital continued bold well well anything i can tell you i shall be most happy it's about the accounts uh, then my dear fellow i can tell you nothing for i am as ignorant as a child all i know is that they pay me eight hundred pounds a year go to chadwick he knows all about the accounts and now tell me will poor mary jones ever get the use of her limb again well i think she will if she's careful but m mr harding i hope you won't object to discuss with me what i have to say about the hospital mr harding gave a deep long-drawn sigh he did object very strongly object to discuss any such subject with john bold but he had not the business tact of mr chadwick and did not know how to relieve himself from the coming evil he sighed sadly but made no answer i have the greatest regard for you mr harding continued bold the truest respect the most sincere thank you thank you mr bold interjaculated the precentor somewhat impatiently i'm much obliged but never mind that i'm as likely to be in the wrong as another man quite as likely but mr harding i must express what i feel lest you should think there is personal enmity in what i'm going to do personal enmity going to do why you're not going to cut my throat nor put me into the ecclesiastical court bold tried to laugh but he couldn't he was quite in earnest and determined in his course and couldn't make a joke of it he walked on a while in silence before he recommenced his attack during which mr harding who had still the bow in his hand played rapidly on an imaginary violoncello i fear there is reason to think that john hiram's will is not carried out to the letter mr harding said the young man at last and i have been asked to see into it very well i've no objection on earth and now we need not say another word about it only one word more mr harding chadwick has referred me to cox and cummins and i think it my duty to apply to them for some statement about the hospital in what i do i may appear to be interfering with you and i hope you'll forgive me for doing so mr bold said the other stopping and speaking with some solemnity if you act justly say nothing in this matter but the truth and use no unfair weapons in carrying out your purposes i shall have nothing to forgive 
I presume you think I'm not entitled to the income I received from the hospital, and that others are, others are entitled to it. Whatever some may do, I shall never attribute to you base motives because you hold an opinion opposed to my own and averse to my interests. Pray, do what you consider to be your duty. I can give you no assistance, neither will I offer you any obstacle. Let me, however, suggest to you that you can in no wise forward your views, nor I mine, by any discussion between us. Here comes Eleanor and the ponies, and we'll go into tea. Bold, however, felt that he could not sit down at ease with Mr. Harding and his daughter after what had passed, and therefore excused himself with much awkward apology, and merely raising his hat and bowing as he passed Eleanor in the pony chair, left her in disappointed amazement at his departure. Mr. Harding's demeanor certainly impressed Bold with a full conviction that the warden felt that he stood on strong grounds, and almost made him think that he was about to interfere without due warrant in the private affairs of a just and honorable man. But Mr. Harding himself was anything but satisfied with his own view of the case. In the first place, he wished for Eleanor's sake to think well of Bold and to like him, and yet he could not but feel disgusted at the arrogance of his conduct. What right had he to say that John Hiram's will was not fairly carried out? But then the question would arise within his heart. Was that will fairly acted on? Did John Hiram mean that the warden of his hospital should receive considerably more out of the legacy than all the twelve old men together for whose behoof the hospital was built? Could it be possible that John Bold was right? and that the reverend warden of the hospital had been for the last ten years and more the unjust recipient of an income legally and equitably belonging to others. What if it should be proved before the light of day that he, whose life had been so happy, so quiet, so respected, had absorbed eight thousand pounds to which he had no title, and which he could never repay? I do not say that he feared that such was really the case, but the first shade of doubt now fell across his mind, and from this evening, for many a long, long day, our good, kind, loving warden was neither happy nor at ease. Thoughts of this kind, these first moments of such misery, oppressed Mr. Harding as he sat sipping his tea, absent and ill at ease. Poor Eleanor felt all was not right, but her ideas as to the cause of the evening's discomfort did not go beyond her lover, and his sudden and uncivil departure. She thought there must have been some quarrel between Bold and her father, and she was half angry with both, though she did not attempt to explain to herself why she was so. Mr. Harding thought long and deeply over these things, both before he went to bed and after it, as he lay awake questioning within himself the validity of his claim to the income which he enjoyed. It seemed clear at any rate that, however unfortunate he might be at having been placed in such a position, no one could say that he ought either to have refused the appointment first, or to have rejected the income afterwards. All the world, meaning the ecclesiastical world as confined to the English church, knew that the wardenship of the Barchester Hospital was a snug sinecure, but no one had ever been blamed for accepting it. To how much blame, however, would he have been open had he rejected it? 
how mad would he have been thought had he declared when the situation was vacant and offered to him that he had scruples as to receiving eight hundred pounds a year from john hiram's property and that he had rather some stranger should possess it how would dr grantly have shaken his wise head and have consulted with his friends in the close as to some decent retreat for the coming insanity of the poor minor canon if he was right in accepting the place it was clear to him also that he would be wrong in rejecting any part of the income attached to it the patronage was a valuable appanage of the bishopric and surely it would not be his duty to lessen the value of that preferment which had been bestowed on himself surely he was bound to stand by his order but somehow these arguments though they seemed logical were not satisfactory was john hiram's will fairly carried out that was the true question and if not was it not his especial duty to see that this was done his especial duty whatever injury it might do to his order however ill such duty might be received by his patron and his friends at the idea of his friends his mind turned unhappily to his son-in-law he knew well how strongly he would be supported by dr grantly if he could bring himself to put his case into the archdeacon's hands and to allow him to fight the battle but he knew also that he would find no sympathy there for his doubts no friendly feeling no inward comfort dr grantly would be ready enough to take up his cudgel against all comers on behalf of the church militant but he would do so on the distasteful ground of the church's infallibility such a contest would give no comfort to mr harding's doubts he was not so anxious to prove himself right as to be so i have said before that dr grantly was the working man of the diocese and that his father the bishop was somewhat inclined to an idle life so it was but the bishop though he had never been an active man was one whose qualities had rendered him dear to all who knew him he was the very opposite to his son he was a bland and a kind old man opposed by every feeling to authoritative demonstrations and episcopal ostentation it was perhaps well for him in his situation that his son had early in life been able to do that which he could not well do when he was younger and which he could not have done at all now that he was over seventy the bishop knew how to entertain the clergy of his diocese to talk easy small talk with the rector's wives and put curates at their ease but it required the strong hand of the archdeacon to deal with such as were refractory either in their doctrines or their lives the bishop and mr harding loved each other warmly they had grown old together and had together spent many many years in clerical pursuits and clerical conversation when one of them was a bishop and the other only a minor canon they were even then much together but since their children had married and mr harding had become warden and precentor they were all in all to each other i will not say that they managed the diocese between them but they spent much time in discussing the man who did and in forming little plans to mitigate his wrath against church delinquents and soften his aspirations for church dominion mr harding determined to open his mind and confess his doubts to his old friend and to him he went on the morning after john bold's uncourteous visit up to this period no rumour of these cruel proceedings against the hospital had reached the bishop's ears 
he had doubtless heard that men existed who questioned his right to present a sinecure of eight hundred pounds a year as he had heard from time to time of some special immorality or disgraceful disturbance in the usually decent and quiet city of barchester but all he did and all he was called on to do on such occasions was to shake his head and to beg his son the great dictator to see that no harm happened to the church it was a long story that mr harding had to tell before he made the bishop comprehend his own view of the case but we need not follow him through the tale at first the bishop counselled but one step recommended but one remedy had but one medicine in his whole pharmacopoeia strong enough to touch so grave a disorder he prescribed the archdeacon refer him to the archdeacon he repeated as mr harding spoke of bold and his visit the archdeacon will set you quite right about that he kindly said when his friend spoke with hesitation on the justness of his cause no man has got up all that so well as the archdeacon but the dose though large failed to quiet the patient indeed it almost produced nausea but bishop said he did you ever read john hiram's will the bishop thought probably he had thirty-five years ago when first instituted to his see but could not state positively however he very well knew that he had the absolute right to present to the wardenship and that the income of the warden had been regularly settled but bishop the question is who has the power to settle it if as this young man says the will provides that the proceeds of the property are to be divided into shares who has the power to alter these provisions the bishop had an indistinct idea that they altered themselves by the lapse of years that a kind of ecclesiastical statute of limitations barred the rights of the twelve bedesmen to any increase of income arising from the increased value of property he said something about tradition more of the many learned men who by their practice had confirmed the present arrangement then went at some length into the propriety of maintaining the due difference in rank and income between a beneficed clergyman and certain poor old men who were dependent on charity and concluded his argument by another reference to the archdeacon the precentor sat thoughtfully gazing at the fire and listening to the good-natured reasoning of his friend what the bishop said had a sort of comfort in it but it was not a sustaining comfort it made mr harding feel that many others indeed all others of his own order would think him right but it failed to prove to him that he truly was so bishop said he at last after both had sat silent for a while i should deceive you and myself too if i did not tell you that i am very unhappy about this suppose that i cannot bring myself to agree with dr grantly that i find after inquiry that the young man is right and that i am wrong what then the two old men were sitting near each other so near that the bishop was able to lay his hand upon the other's knee and he did so with a gentle pressure mr harding well knew what that pressure meant the bishop had no further argument to adduce he could not fight for the cause as his son would do he could not prove all the precentor's doubts to be groundless but he could sympathize with his friend and he did so and mr harding felt that he had received that for which he came there was another period of silence after which the bishop asked with a degree of irritable energy very unusual with him whether this pestilent intruder 
meaning john bold had any friends in barchester mr harding had fully made up his mind to tell the bishop everything to speak of his daughter's love as well as his own troubles to talk of john bold in his double capacity of future son-in-law and present enemy and though he felt it to be sufficiently disagreeable now was his time to do it he is very intimate at my own house bishop the bishop stared he was not so far gone in orthodoxy and church militancy as his son but still he could not bring himself to understand how so declared an enemy of the establishment could be admitted on terms of intimacy into the house not only of so firm a pillar as mr harding but one so much injured as the warden of the hospital indeed i like mr bold much personally continued the disinterested victim and to tell you the truth he hesitated as he brought out the dreadful tidings i have sometimes thought it not improbable that he would be my second son-in-law the bishop did not whistle we believe that they lose the power of doing so on being consecrated and that in these days one might as easily meet a corrupt judge as a whistling bishop but he looked as though he would have done so but for his apron what a brother-in-law for the archdeacon what an alliance for barchester close what a connection for even the episcopal palace the bishop in his simple mind felt no doubt that john bold had he so much power would shut up all cathedrals and probably all parish churches distribute all ties among methodists baptists and other savage tribes utterly annihilate the sacred bench and make shovel hats and lawn sleeves as illegal as cowls sandals and sackcloth here was a nice man to be initiated into the comfortable arcana of ecclesiastical snuggeries one who doubted the integrity of parsons and probably disbelieved the trinity mr harding saw what an effect his communication had made and almost repented the openness of his disclosure he however did what he could to moderate the grief of his friend and patron i do not say there is any engagement between them had there been eleanor would have told me i know her well enough to be assured that she would have done so but i see that they're fond of each other and as a man and a father i have had no objection to urge against their intimacy but mr harding said the bishop how are you to oppose him if he is your son-in-law i don't mean to oppose him it's he who opposes me if anything is to be done in defence i i suppose chadwick will do it i suppose oh the archdeacon will see to that were the young man twice his brother-in-law the archdeacon will never be deterred from doing what he feels to be right mr harding reminded the bishop that the archdeacon and the reformer were not yet brothers and very probably never would be exacted from him a promise that eleanor's name should not be mentioned in any discussion between the father bishop and son archdeacon respecting the hospital and then took his departure leaving his poor old friend bewildered amazed and confounded end of chapter three recording by jessica louise st paul minnesota chapter four of the warden this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by jessica louise the warden by anthony trollope chapter four 
Hiram's Beadsman The parties most interested in the movement which is about to set Barchester by the ears were not the foremost to discuss the merit of the question, as is often the case. But when the bishop, the archdeacon, the warden, the steward, and Monsieur Cox and Cummins were all busy with the matter, each in his own way, it is not to be supposed that Hiram's beadsmen themselves were altogether passive spectators. Finney, the attorney, had been among them, asking sly questions and raising immoderate hopes, creating a party hostile to the warden, and establishing a corps in the enemy's camp, as he figuratively calls it to himself. Poor old men! Whoever may be righted or wronged by this inquiry, they at any rate will assuredly be only injured. To them it can only be an unmixed evil. How can their lot be improved? All their wants are supplied, every comfort is administered, they have warm houses, good clothes, plentiful diet, and rest after a life of labor. And above all, that treasure so inestimable in declining years, a true and kind friend to listen to their sorrows, watch over their sickness, and administer comfort as regards this world and the world to come. John Bold sometimes thinks of this when he is talking loudly of the rights of the beadsman, whom he has taken under his protection. But he quiets this suggestion within his breast with the high-sounding name of justice. Fiat justitia ruat coelum. These old men should, by rights, have one hundred pounds a year instead of one shilling and sixpence a day, and the warden should have two hundred or three hundred pounds instead of eight hundred pounds. What is unjust must be wrong, and what is wrong should be righted, and if he declined the task, who else would do it? Each one of you is clearly entitled to one hundred pounds a year by common law. Such had been the important whisper made by Finney into the ears of Abel Handy, and by him retailed to his eleven brethren. Too much must not be expected from the flesh and blood, even of John Hiram's beadsman, and the positive promise of one hundred a year to each of the twelve old men had its way with most of them. The great bunce was not to be whiled away, and was upheld in his orthodoxy by two adherents. Abel Handy, who was the leader of the aspirants after wealth, had alas a stronger following. No less than five of the twelve soon believed that his views were just, making with their leader a moiety of the hospital. The other three, volatile, unstable minds, vacillated between the two chieftains, now led away by the hope of gold, now anxious to propitiate the powers that still existed. It had been proposed to address a petition to the bishop as visitor, praying his lordship to see justice done to the legal recipients of John Hiram's charity, and to send copies of this petition and of the reply it would elicit to all the leading London papers, and thereby to obtain notoriety for the subject. This, it was thought, would pave the way for arterior legal proceedings. It would have been a great thing to have had the signatures and marks of all the twelve injured legatees, but this was impossible. Bunce would have cut his hand off sooner than have signed it. It was then suggested by Finney that, if even eleven could be induced to sanction the document, the one obstinate recusant might have been represented as unfit to judge on such a question, in fact, as being non copos mentis, and the petition would have been taken as representing the feeling of the men. But this could not be done. Bunce's friends were as firm as himself, and yet only six crosses adorned the document. 
it was the more provoking as bunce himself could write his name legibly and one of those three doubting souls had for years boasted of like power and possessed indeed a bible in which he was proud to show his name written by himself some thirty years ago job sculpit but it was thought that job sculpit having forgotten his scholarship on that account recoiled from the petition and that the other doubters would follow as he led them a petition signed by half the hospital would have but poor effect it was in sculpit's room that the petition was now lying waiting such additional signatures as abel handy by his eloquence could obtain for it the six marks it bore were duly attested thus abel handy his mark greg moody his mark matthew spriggs his mark etc and places were duly designated in pencil for those brethren who were now expected to join for sculpit alone was left a spot on which his genuine signature might be written in fair clerk-like style handy had brought in the document and spread it out on the small deal table and was now standing by it persuasive and eager moody had followed with an inkhorn carefully left behind by finney and spriggs bore aloft as though it were a sword a well-worn ink-black pen which from time to time he endeavoured to thrust into sculpit's unwilling hand with the learned man were his two abettors in indecision william gazy and jonathan crumple if ever the petition were to be forwarded now was the time so said mr finney and great was the anxiety on the part of those whose one hundred pounds a year as they believed mainly depended on the document in question to be kept out of all that money as the avaricious moody had muttered to his friend handy by an old fool saying that he can write his own name like his betters well job said handy trying to impart his own sour ill-omened visage of a smile of approbation in which he greatly failed so you're ready now mr finney says here's the place d'ye see and he put his huge brown finger down on the dirty paper name or mark it's all one come along old boy if so be you were to have the spending of this money why the sooner the better that's my maxim to be sure said moody we ain't none of us so young we can't stay waiting for the old cat no longer it was thus these miscreants named our excellent friend the nickname he could easily have forgiven but the allusion to the divine source of all his melodious joy would have irritated even him let us hope he never knew the insult only think old billy gazy said spriggs who rejoiced in greater youth than his brethren but having fallen into a fire when drunk had had one eye burnt out one cheek burnt through and one arm nearly burnt off and who therefore in regard to personal appearance was not the most prepossessing of men a hundred a year and all to spend only think old billy gazy and he gave a hideous grin that showed off his misfortunes to their full extent old billy gazy was not alive to much enthusiasm even these golden prospects did not arouse him to do more than rub his poor old bleared eyes with the cuff of his beadsman's gown and gently mutter he didn't know not he he didn't know but you'd know jonathan continued spriggs turning to the other friend of sculpit's who was sitting on a stool by the table gazing vacantly at the petition jonathan crumple was a meek mild man who had known better days his means had been wasted by bad children who had made his life wretched till he had been received into the hospital of which he had not long been a member 
since that day he had known neither sorrow nor trouble and this attempt to fill him with new hopes was indeed a cruelty a hundred a year's a nice thing for certain neighbor spriggs said he i once had nigh to that myself but it didn't do me no good and he gave a low sigh as he thought of the children of his own loins who had robbed him and shall have again joe said handy and we'll have someone to keep it right and tight for you this time crumple sighed again he had learned the impotency of worldly wealth and would have been satisfied if left untempted to have remained happy with one and sixpence a day come sculpit repeated handy getting impatient you're not going to go along with old bunce and helping that parson to rob us all take the pen man and write yourself well he added seeing that sculpit still doubted to see a man is as afraid to stand by himself as to my thinking the meanest thing as is sink them all for parsons says i growled moody hungry beggars as never thinks their bellies full till they've robbed all and everything who's to harm you man argued spriggs let them look never so black at you they can't get you put out when you're once in no not old cat gut with calves to help em i'm sorry to say the archdeacon himself was designated by this scurrilous allusion to his nether person a hundred a year to win and nothing to lose continued handy my eyes well how a man's to doubt about sich a bit of cheese as that passes me but some men is timorous some men is born with no pluck in em some men is cowed at the very first sight of a gentleman's coat and waistcoat oh mr harding if you had but taken the archdeacon's advice in that disputed case when joe mutters was this ungrateful demagogue's rival candidate afraid of a parson growled moody and with a look of ineffable scorn i tell you what i'd be afraid of i'd be afraid of not getting nothing from em but just what i could take by might and right that's the most i'd be afraid on of any parson of em all but said sculpit apologetically mr harding's not so bad he did give us tuppence a day didn't he now tuppence a day exclaimed spriggs with scorn opening awfully the red cavern of his lost eye tuppence a day muttered moody with a curse sink his tuppence tuppence a day exclaimed handy and i'm to go hat in hand and thank a chap for tuppence a day when he owes me a hundred pounds a year no thank you that may do for you but it won't for me come i say sculpit are you going to put your mark on this here paper or are you not sculpit looked round in wretched indecision to his two friends what do you think bill gazy said he but bill gazy couldn't think he made a noise like the bleeding of an old sheep which was intended to express the agony of his doubt and again muttered that he didn't know take hold you old cripple said handy thrusting the pen into poor billy's hand there so Ugh, you old fool you've been and smeared it all there that'll do for you that's as good as the best name as ever was written and a big blotch of ink was presumed to represent billy gazy's acquiescence now jonathan said handy turning to crumple a hundred a year's a nice thing for certain again argued crumple well neighbor sculpit how's it to be oh please yourself said sculpit please yourself when you please me the pen was thrust into crumple's hand and a faint wandering meaningless sign was made betokening such sanction and authority as jonathan crumple was able to convey 
Come, Job, said Handy, softened by success. Don't let him have to say that old Bunce has a man like you under his thumb. A man that always holds his head in the hospital as high as Bunce himself, though you're never axed to drink wine and sneak and tell lies about your betters as he does. Sculpid held the pen and made little flourishes with it in the air, but still hesitated. "'And if you'll be said by me,' continued Handy, "'you'll not write your name to it at all, but just put your mark like the others.' The cloud began to clear from Sculpid's brow. "'We all know you can do it if you like, but maybe you wouldn't like to seem uppish, you know.' "'Well, the mark would be best,' said Sculpid. "'One name and the rest marks wouldn't look well, would it?' "'The worst in the world,' said Handy. "'There, there,' and stooping over the petition, the learned clerk made a huge cross on the place left for his signature. "'That's the game,' said Handy, triumphantly pocketing the petition. "'We're all in a boat now, that is, the nine of us, and as for Bunce and his cronies, they may—' But as he was hobbling off to the door with a crutch on one side and a stick on the other, he was met by Bunce himself. "'Well, Handy—' "'And what may old Bunce do?' said the grey-haired, upright senior. Handy muttered something and was departing, but he was stopped in the doorway by the huge frame of the newcomer. "'You've been doing no good here, Abel Handy,' said he. "'Tis plain to see that, and tis a much good I'm thinking you ever do.' "'I mind my own business, Master Bunce,' muttered the other, "'and you do the same.' It ain't nothing to you what I does, and your spying and poking here won't do no good nor yet no harm. I suppose then, Job, continued Bunce, not noticing his opponent, if the truth must out, you've stuck your name to that petition of theirs at last. Sculpit looked as though he were about to sink into the ground with shame. What is it to you what he signs? said Handy. I suppose if we all wants to ax for our own, we didn't ax leave of you first, Mr. Bunce, big a man as you are. And as to your sneaking in here, in a Job's room when he's busy and when you're not wanted. I've knowed Job's sculpit, man and boy, sixty years, said Bunce, looking at the man of whom he spoke. And that's ever since the day he was born. I knowed the mother that bore him. "'And when she and I were little wee things, picking daisies together in the clothes yonder, "'and I've lived under the same roof with him, more nor ten years. "'And after that I may come into his room without axin' leave, and yet no sneakin' neither.' "'So you can, Mr. Bunce,' said Sculpit. "'So you can, any hour, dear night.' "'And I'm free also to tell him my mind,' continued Bunce, looking at the one man and addressing the other. "'And I tell him now that he's done a foolish and a wrong thing. "'He's turned his back upon one who is his best friend, and is playing the game of others, "'who care nothing for him whether he be poor or rich, well or ill, alive or dead. "'A hundred a year? Are the lot of you soft enough to think that it, if a hundred a year be to be given, "'it's the likes of you that will get it?' and he pointed to Billy Gazy, Spriggs, and Crumple. Did any of us ever do anything worth half the money? Was it to make gentlemen of us? We were brought in here, when all the world turned against us, and we couldn't longer earn our daily bread. Ain't you all as rich in your ways as he is in his? And the orator pointed to the side on which the warden lived. Ain't you getting all that you hoped for? Aye, and more than you hoped for. "'Wouldn't each of you have given the dearest limb of his body "'to secure that which now makes you so unthankful?' 
"'We wants what John Hiram left us,' said Handy. "'We wants what arn by law. "'It doesn't matter what we expected. "'It's arn by law should be arn, and by goals we'll have it.' "'Law,' said Bunce, with all the scorn he knew how to command. "'Law! Did ye ever know a poor man yet was the better for law or for a lawyer? "'Will Mr. Finney ever be as good to you, Job, as that man has been?' will he see to you when you're sick and comfort you when you're wretched will he no nor give you a port wine old boy on cold winter nights he won't do that will he asked handy and laughing at the severity of his own wit he and his colleagues retired carrying with them however their now powerful petition there is no help for spilt milk and mr bunce could only retire to his own room disgusted at the frailty of human nature job sculpit scratched his head Jonathan Crumple again remarked that, for sartin, sure, a hundred a year was very nice. And Billy Gazy again rubbed his eyes, and lowly muttered that he didn't know. End of chapter 4 Recording by Jessica Louise, St. Paul, Minnesota say goodbye to your credit card rewards greedy corporate mega stores led by walmart and target are pushing for a law in congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets the durbin marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it if you love your credit card rewards tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards tell them to oppose the durbin marshall credit card bill